Good morning and welcome this morning to the gathering, Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful to be back in the pulpit this morning. As most of you know, I had open heart surgery just a, over a month ago. I've been recovering for these uh, over these past few weeks and have uh, been able to uh, recover most of my strength. I'm so, so thankful to you that as the body of Christ that you've allowed me to, you've shown me patience as I've rested and recovered. Uh, I have been chomping at the bit to get back, but I've also recognized the need for rest as my body recovers. You know, truly God made us to need rest. Uh, he built that need for rest into the structure of our seven-day week, did He not? We see that every week. We have uh, six days that we work, and on the seventh day we, we rest. That is, his, that is how He has built and structured uh, the world. God gave the pattern for our seven-day our seven day week, actually gave that in Genesis chapter 1. He also gave us the pattern for rest on uh, a seventh day. Now, I'm, also, I'm, thankful, I'm also thankful for the common grace of modern medicine. Uh, I've often said that I would not be alive today were it not for the knowledge of the human body that people have uh, gained. This knowledge allows for some amazing interventions, including the bypass surgery that I underwent just a few weeks ago. Now, prior to my surgery, prior to that surgery, I had planned a one-week break during the summer, but I guess that turned into a five-week sabbatical, an unplanned sabbatical, but that's okay. I guess the Lord wanted me to rest. I want you to hear this theme of rest. He wanted me to rest a little longer than I had planned. And you know, that need for rest is one of the things that separates God from man, is it not? God from man, God from His creation. As the psalmist states in Psalm 121, verses 1-4, through I will lift my eyes to the heavens, or to the mountains, from where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, that theme of God creating, God making heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps... Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So we see that our God doesn't need rest. We serve a God who never sleeps on the job. He doesn't have weaknesses like us. He doesn't need rest like us. He constantly holds this world together by the word of His power. Just listen to the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-3. through three. God, after He spoke... Long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, who He appointed heir of all things. Listen to this. Through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. The writer of Hebrews says that God has spoken to us through His Son, or in His Son, through whom He made, also made the world. You see the importance of understanding Genesis chapter 1, because that's what the writer of Hebrews is understanding. The writer of Hebrews also states that the Lord Jesus, He upholds all things by the word of His power. 
The Apostle Paul says something very similar in Colossians 1.17. He says this of the Lord Jesus, for, him, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him, and for Him He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Clearly the biblical authors place great importance in the creation account. Because they, they reference back to it constantly. That's the reason we've chosen to do a sermon series focused on the biblical account of creation. I want you to understand what the biblical authors understood. This is the fourth sermon in this series that we've entitled Battle from the Beginning. The Battle from the Beginning. I want to start today by reading from Psalm 33, verses 6-12. Now, as I read these verses, I want you to meditate on God's majesty. Meditate on the weightiness of this account. <clears throat> but I also want you to think through, as, as I read this, I want you to think through the implications of Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. So let me read Psalm 33, starting in verse 6. Psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth, <coughs> let all the earth fear, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now listen to this. For He spoke, and it was done. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. <clears throat> the Lord nullifies the the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart generate from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for His own inheritance. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. What I want, my prayer this morning, my desire this morning, I pray would be a godly desire that this church and those hearing me and, and the hearing of my voice, that they would come to see Lord, that You are God of creation. That you created this world to bring you glory for your majesty. Father, what a wonderful truth that you spoke the world into existence by the word of your power. It's a simple truth. And I pray that I would be able to convey that truth this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Now with Psalm 33 fresh in your mind, I want you to turn to Mark 435-41. Gospel of Mark 435-41. Now let me set the scene. 
We know from Matthew's account that Jesus and his disciples were in Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. According to Matthew, there was a crowd that was pressing in on them, so Jesus decided to sail to sail to the other side with his disciples. Now let me pick up in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4. It says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, as just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Now, to give you a little bit of history and, and, and topography, uh, the Sea of Galilee is 690 feet below sea level. During the summer months, strong winds sweep into the valley, causing fierce storms. In this case, the waves threatened to sink the boat. It was, a, it was a, an amazingly powerful storm. In Mark 4.38, it says that Jesus was in the stern of the boat. He was asleep on the cushion, and they, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, these disciples were scared. They were fearful. They were fearful for their lives. Now, as you can see, Jesus himself was asleep. Now, we get a glimpse of his humanity in this chaotic scene. I loved the fact that Mark tells us that he was asleep on the cushion. Now, Matthew's account of this event was a little more forceful. The you see, the disciples were actually having a major freakout. According, according to Matthew, they were saying, Lord, save us, we are going to drown. They truly thought, the, these disciples truly thought they would, be, would perish in this storm. You see, these men that were with Jesus, they knew these waters, and they recognized the major trouble that they were in. So they went to Jesus, and they said, Lord, save us. Ironically, the fishermen went to the carpenter to save them from the stormy waters. But you see, Jesus was no ordinary man. Look at verse 39. And he got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. You see, at Jesus' command... The wind instantly stopped, and in Mark's words, it became perfectly calm. I'm certain that the men were reminded of Psalm 89.9 that says, You, O Lord, You rule the swelling of the sea, and when its waves rise, You still them. Of course, the psalmist is thinking and preaching of Yahweh. Yahweh. Mark 4.40 he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? You see, these men thought that they were about to perish. Their years of experience as, as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee told them that they would not get out of this life. Yet Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. He rebuked them, and He rebuked the disciples for their fear and lack of faith. Look at verse 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this? Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They became, they were afraid of the, the sea and the waves, right? They were afraid of the wind. 
But they became even more afraid because they recognized the power of the one in the boat. They recognized that the power of the one in the boat far exceeded the power of any storm. They recognized Him as the Creator who had power over the wind and the waves. MacArthur's study Bible simply states the only thing more terrifying than having a storm outside the boat was having God in the boat. Beloved, if you're struggling with the idea that God created our world in six literal days, I will submit to you this account of Jesus calming the storm by His command does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. He stilled the sea and the winds by His Word, by the Word of His power. If God didn't create the world in six literal days by the Word of His power, that account makes no sense. You see, only God rules the sea and the winds. He commands them along with the rest of the world by His mighty Word. As we saw earlier in in Colossians 1, what we saw earlier is that He upholds all things by the Word of His power. In the case of Jesus calming the wind and the waves, Jesus showed dominion over creation. According to Scripture, there is only one who has power over creation. Yahweh. In other words, by stilling the wind and the waves, He firmly established to His disciples that He was the one who spoke the world into existence. And that makes sense when we read the account of Genesis 1. He is the one... This is even more amazing. He is the one even as his head lay on the pillow, even as his head lay on the pillow, he is the one who holds the world together by his power. Get that. I don't understand it. But I know it to be true. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1.17. You notice you notice the, the disciples' reactions after they, reaction after they witnessed what Jesus did uh, with the waters. Notice they said, who then is this? The other accounts say, what manner of a man is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him? In the words of R.C. Sproul, he says, after the threat of nature is removed totally and suddenly and completely removed, there is a palpable increase in the fear of these men. The Bible says now they became very much afraid. What was the source of the intensity of their new fear? It was Jesus. He saved them from the storm, but they are now more frightened of Christ than they are of the storm. You see, they are afraid of Him because they recognize that He is alien to them. He's different. He is the only man who ever lived with the ability to command nature and it obey. As they sat in the calmness of that rain-soaked boat, they recognized Jesus as the Holy Creator spoken of in Psalm 33. 
Again, this miracle makes no sense if, it, if God didn't create the world by his word. The Apostle John says that that is none other than Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. He says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in John 1, 14, he says the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, John wanted his readers to understand that Jesus was the Word. He was the one who spoke the world into existence. And that the Creator became flesh. And He, this is amazing. The Creator became flesh and He dwelt among His creation. Now, as I said, we're gonna, this is the fourth of our series in Genesis 1 through 3, fourth sermon. Since we had an extended break, I'll take, I want to bring you, take some time to bring you up to date in this series. I started, I started this series a few weeks ago with the following questions. First I ask, is Genesis deceptive history, or is it debatable history, or is it definite history? Now, I ended that sermon, as, as I ended that sermon, I showed you that the biblical writers, along with the Lord Jesus, all agree that this is the accurate, that Genesis is the accurate and authoritative account of the beginning of the world. Just listen to this. The New Testament writers made over 100 references to Genesis 1-11. through Jesus himself referred to events in Genesis 15 times. My personal favorite reference is found in Matthew 23:35. In that verse, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament canon, including the early chapters of Genesis. Specifically, he referred to a man named Abel. Well, we find Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He says in Matthew 23:35, so that upon you uh, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the righteous from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You see, Genesis, Genesis, or Jesus' re- reference to Adam and Eve's son shows that he understood the early chapters of Genesis as being definite history, actual history, definitive history. In the second sermon of the series, they answered the question, what does God... What does Genesis 1 reveal about God, and why did he share, share that account with us? He showed, they showed that God created the world out of nothing by the word of his power, by the word of his power, which is called ex nihilo creation, uh, everything out of nothing. He, he also showed us, they also showed us that God revealed himself to man as the holy creator in Genesis chapter 1. In his sermon, he made the clear point that only God can create something from nothing. Now, you may recall that he said only God can bara, which is the Hebrew word for create, only God can bara something into existence. It's only that, that word is only used of God. Now, they also established five thoughts about God and his creation. He said that God created the world and can do with it as he pleases, Psalm 115.3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Now, God also has unilateral power over his creation and we saw that we saw that with the Lord Jesus in the boat that's why I wanted to give you that account we saw that because he can suspend the laws of his creation when he pleases 
These appear to us, may appear to us as miracles. The story, again, of Jesus calming the sea only makes light or makes sense in light of this truth. Third, God has self-control. You see, there is a structure and order in God's creation. God looked at His creation and, and He saw that it was good. God was not indifferent to His creation. He, he was orderly in making it. And fourth, he was our fifth, I'm sorry, God is a creative genius. He created everything out of nothing. In other words, the concepts of the created order only existed in the mind of God. Now, Keith Kemp preached the third sermon in this series uh, from Genesis 1.26-28. These verses focus on the special creation of man, the pinnacle of his creation. All of, all of creation leads up to the creation of man. The first... The first days of creation up to day six is the stage or the setting for what God will do with mankind. In man, God's glory would be revealed. This is especially true because He sent His Son as a man into His creation. God created man so that we may know Him intimately. He also created man to carry out His purposes in creation. In in his sermon, Keith showed us that God's plan for creation and for man. God's plan was to be personally and intimately involved with his creation. Therefore, God created man in his own image. Of all creation, only man is created in God's image and in his likeness. We were also, according to Genesis 1.26, we were also created to rule over his creation. He told us that, that God created us for, th for four reasons. He created us to have a relationship with, with Him, with one another, and with Him as our Creator. He created us for rationality, to make rational choices. God made us to be logical and gave us the ability to think. He created us for righteousness, that we would make moral decisions that reflect His glory. And He created us to rule. To rule over His creation in righteousness. Now this was all part of God's plan. Keith also showed us that God's process. He created man in His image as male and female. We see in this verse, uh, verse 27, chapter 1 verse 27, we see the word for creation, bara, three times. Clearly, God wants us to understand that He created mankind on the sixth day of creation. That He created us. That there was a definite beginning of us. We didn't evolve over millions of years. God spoke us into existence. This helps us recognize the importance of man and God's creation. This verse also shows us that God created us as male and female. And that, that's the pattern He said in Genesis 1.27. That we are male and female. Which leads us to the third point that Keith made. God's pronouncement. He blessed them. God blessed them. He blessed the man and the woman. He placed them in His perfect creation. He gave them the ability to procreate. He gave us the ability to subdue the world. And He blessed us and He set us to rule over His creation. And that's important for us to understand. Now, 
As we continue our study in Genesis 1-3, through I want to help you understand why we would take the time to study this. If you've been around me much, you know my love for, the, for this book. You know my love for Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters. I want you to understand why I had this love, and I want you to grow in your love for this amazing book. Sadly, especially the first three chapters of, the, of Genesis, is uh, probably one of the most contested books in the Bible in, ter- in terms of its interpretation. I join the biblical authors, as I've shown you, I hope, that in taking Genesis 1-3 through as the literal account of the creation of the world and the fall of man into sin. Just listen to David in Psalm 145. He says in verse 3, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. Well, beloved, we can most clearly see Yahweh's greatness in two ways. In His creation and His Word. That's Psalm 19. The creation is Word. I believe a right understanding of Genesis reveals God's glorious work in creation, including His creation of man. God's glorious work in salvation. And God's awesome power. Now, we need to recognize the importance of the Pentateuch, which, is, which Genesis is the first book. Now, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. It is foundational to our understanding of the Bible. It sets the context for everything God has done, is doing, and will do in this world, the world that He created. When rightly understood, it gives God's people great confidence that He will accomplish His plan. Now, if we take Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch literally, we, it, the, it paints a picture of a God who cannot be thwarted by evil. It clearly shows us that God is holy, and it tells us that He is not only holy, but He is good. He is full of loving kindness toward His people. And it clearly lays out the beginning of God's plan for redemption. Now, I believe that a recognition of the book's theme and structure will help us understand its purpose. Now, I'm specifically talking about Genesis here. The theological theme of Genesis is beginnings, beginnings, or God begins. In Genesis, we see the beginning of the world and the cosmos. We see the beginning or the introduction of sin. We see the beginning of redemption. We see the beginning of judgment with the flood narrative. We see the beginning of the nations in Genesis chapter 10. We see the beginning of languages. We see God raising up one nation, Israel, as His vehicle of accomplishing redemption. And we see that no matter the evil perpetrated against God and His people to thwart His plans, He always turns it to good. That's Genesis 50-20, if you want that reference. Now, before we get into the rest of the sermon, I want to give you some background to the book of Genesis. 
As I said, Genesis is part of the first book or first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, Genesis or Moses wrote Genesis as part of the Pentateuch uh, around the time of the Exodus uh, and the and be- just before the entry into the Promised Land. He wrote the Pentateuch as proof of who God is and his plan as God's people were getting ready to enter the Promised Land. Uh, Moses used the, the Pentateuch to motivate God's people to show them the God they serve and to motivate them as they entered the promised land. Because what happens in, the, in these first five books is it shows God's greatness, it shows His redemption, and it shows His people that they had nothing to fear. Because if, if God created the world, if God created everything, they have nothing to fear from the nations that they're going into, or the land they're going into. Abner Chow says, Genesis through Deuteronomy is the greatest motivational speech ever written. It reveals the God we serve and shows that we have nothing to fear. So as we, as we consider Genesis chapter 1, if, if Genesis chapter 1 is true, then we as God's people have absolutely nothing to fear because we serve the God who spoke the world into existence. That's the point. Now I want you to understand that the Pentateuch is one of the most complex documents in the New Testament. And that poses a big problem for for liberal scholars. Because the expectation is that biblical revelation would start simple and become complex over time, right? Because things are becoming more complex. That's this evolutionary mindset. Yet when you look at Genesis, it's exactly the opposite. That it's more complex than, than what comes after. Before we dive into the text, I want to give you the structure of Genesis. I'm sorry that this is probably feels like more of a lecture than a sermon, but that's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll turn the corner here in a little while. But before we dive into the text of Genesis 1, I, I want to give you the structure. Genesis is structured around several what we call toledotes. These are simply genealogies. And this is important for you to know, I, I, I think that, because, and you'll see why in a moment. The, the first of these is found in Genesis 2-4, where it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. The second Toledot, or the second genealogy, is found in Genesis 5-1. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that when God created man, he made man, or made him, in the likeness of God. Now, I've given the rest of these, if you have the sermon notes, I've given the rest of these uh, to you. Genesis 6-9, Genesis 10-1, Genesis 11 10 11-27, 25-12, 25-19, 36-1, and 37-2. Uh, those are the different toledotes of the, the book of Genesis, and that's how this book is, is structured. Now, these toledotes, or these genealogies, are crucial for us to understand uh, the structure of not only Genesis, but also the structure of the Bible itself and the purposes of God. You see, in Genesis 3.15, God promised a seed. He promised a seed. A seed that would crush the serpent's head. Now, but that begs a question. Who is this seed, and where will he come from? The genealogies of Genesis move step by step toward the ultimate seed who will crush the serpent's head. In Genesis, what we have is a narrowing effect that shows us where the seed will come from. We see in 
Genesis 3.15, we see that promised seed. In Genesis 4, we see the pre-flood world. And in Genesis 5, we see Adam's line, which culminates in or narrows down to Noah and his family. After the flood, we know from the text that the people had one language and congregated with one another. Uh, from Genesis 11, 1 and 2, we know that they, that they were, were together. And so God repeated His command to be fruitful and multiply and spread over the earth. But they chose to unite and build a tower to heaven to make a name for this themselves. Uh, they said, come let us build a city and a tower whose top will reach heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. Now, in response, God confused their languages and scattered them over the whole face of the whole earth. Now, after this incident, here's the, here's the point. After this incident, there were many nations speaking different languages according to Genesis 10 or 11. Now, that begs the question, from where would the seed come? There's this promised seed in Genesis 3.15. Then you have the scattering of the people. The question becomes, where does the seed come from? Well, God begins to answer that question with a man named Abram in Genesis 12. You see, God made, promised to make him a great nation. And in Genesis 37, we see Jacob or Israel. And after this, Moses re reveals that, that the seed would come from Judah. And so we see this narrowing of who, where the seed is going to come from, from, from Genesis. Ultimately, the genealogies connect from Genesis 5 to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, where they narrow down to two people, Luke and Mary. Joseph and Mary, and one seed, Jesus the Messiah. In the words of Abner Chow, history and genealogy prove that there can only be one Messiah and Jesus is the one. Now, based on all that we've said thus far, we learned three things that I hope will elevate your understanding of Genesis. First, Genesis is more sophisticated and complex than you may expect at face value. For example, I hope to prove to you that they were so searching for the Messiah from day one of the fall. There was this promised seed, and I, I hope to prove to you and show you that they were searching for this promised seed or the Messiah from day one of the fall. It is also clear that Adam and Eve had, a, had an expectation of this coming seed. And the book of Genesis then sets the trajectory for the rest of Scripture. Starting with Genesis, <clears throat> we find that the Bible is one united storyline pointing to the Messiah and His ministry from the very beginning. And we cannot understand, by the way, we cannot understand the middle or the ending of Scripture without understanding the beginning. So let's, with that, let's, let's jump into Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I intend for us uh, to finish this series over the next three or four weeks. So, as you look at your watches, this outline, I, I hope, will move quickly. So, we're going to spend some time in this and then today, and then we'll keep going over the next few weeks. Now, 
Genesis chapter 1, through, chapter 1 verse 1 through 2, 3 gives the account of the creation of heaven, the creation of the earth and mankind, and it shows that God created the world by His world, by His power, by forming His world by His power, by filling His world by His power, by founding the, the delegation of His power, and by framing the pattern of His power. Now, uh, let's, let's look at the first point, God created by forming the, His world by His power. Ultimately, God begins the kingdom of, of this world as a supreme proclamation of His supremacy. Starts out in the beginning. In the beginning. This means that our world, the world that we live in, has a distinct beginning. This directly opposes man, man-made or man uh, Man, what man has come up with, uh, the nebulous nature of evolution that, that, God, that this thing just kind of uh, evolved over millions of years. Uh, God says, in the beginning. The word used for God in chapter 1 is Elohim. Uh, this, is, this is the God who created. He created and transcends His creation. He existed prior to His creation. He is not bound by His creation. He is not bound by time. He transcends everything. This God, Elohim, is in a category by Himself. He is the ultimate. He is the definitive. He is the singular, exclusive, supernatural being. He is the Supreme One. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says that He is the real God. Supreme, absolutely unique, and sovereign over His creation. In the words of Abner Chow, there is a real beginning, a real origin, and there is a God who is above all that. End quote. I hope you recognize the definitive nature of this text. I mean, it, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. According to this text, uh, God comprehensively created everything that exists. The Hebrew word, as Vey pointed out in his sermon, the Hebrew word for create is used only of God. Only God can create. He made everything out of nothing. He is the creator and everything else, including us, is His creation. Look at verse 2. Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. You see, the earth was not organized or filled. It was formless and and void. Notice the text says that the Spirit of God was hovering or moving. The idea here is the idea of of hovering like a bird over its young. Moses uses the same word in in Deuteronomy 32.11 to describe how the Lord cared for Israel in its desert wanderings. So we see that God's Holy Spirit is involved in creation. What about the Son? Notice in verse 3, then God said, then God said, this verse begins the theology of God's Word. God's speech, God's Word has power. You may recall in Psalm 33, for by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. The psalmist says that God made everything by His word. According to the psalmist, uh, God made the heavens and the earth by His word. 
did this by his word. As Revelation progresses, the word of the Lord begins to be personified by the biblical authors. For example, a few months ago, I preached through Jonah. And in Jonah 1.1, the text says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. This is a common refrain in the prophets. The apostle John picks up on that in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning uh, with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You see, the, the, we see this Trinitarian language in the first three verses of the, of the Bible. We see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We see the Spirit of God hovering over His creation, over this formless and void creation. And then we see God's Word, the Word of God. Uh, the Word became flesh. In, in John 1.14, we see the Word of God who is speaking this world into existence. And we look at the process of this forming. In Genesis 1-2, notice it says the earth was formless and void. The text forms the structure for the rest of this narrative in Genesis 1. Day 1-3, through three, God forms His world by creating uh, different locations. And in day 4-6, through six, He fills these locations. As I said, we don't have to make this up. This is the inspired structure of Genesis 1. God gave His creation form, and then He filled it. And we, we should recognize the order here. You see, God does everything with order. Notice in day 1, verses 4 and 5, God created the light and separated it from the darkness. And notice in day 2 that God made the expanse or the firmament, and this is what, uh, this is what man would see when observing the sky. Notice in day three, God made the seas and the dry land, and He also made the vegetation. So that, that, that first three days, He's forming His world. He's forming these locations. Let's look at the second major point in our outline. God created by filling His world by His power. I want you to think about God's world after the first three days of creation. It began formless and void, and now God has given it form. He has formed the light, and He's separated it from the darkness. He has formed the heavens, uh, the sky. He has formed the seas and, and the dry land, and He's also formed vegetation. In His sermon, they compared, in His sermon, they compared Genesis 1 to the various creation myths. Moses had led uh, Israel out, out of Egypt, who had their creation myths. They, these myths are mostly evolutionary in, in nature. But Genesis is completely different than that. Genesis is not a myth because it, it demythologizes, if you will. The only way... So, here's, the, here's what's interesting. The only way that Genesis 1 works is for there to be a God above it all who is speaking the world into existence. The structure of Genesis of these first seven day, six days of creation doesn't allow for long periods of time. I want you to notice something. What's missing after the first three days? Well, there's no sun, moon, and stars. So how does the world work when there's no sun, moon, and stars? There's no birds or fish. There's no insects. There's no land animals. There's no humans. So you can't try to fit 
Genesis chapter 1 into, a, into evolution, an evolutionary mindset. It doesn't work. Anyone who understands this world would know that God's world could not have existed in this condition for long periods of time. So God formed the world, now He sets to fill it. Look at verse 14. It says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth. And it was so. But we know that God created the light in day one. But now he's placing the greater light, the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also, and God, God placed them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth. So we see then this corresponds with God creating the light in day one. Now I want you to notice something else here. Notice that Moses doesn't even bother to name the sun and the moon. He calls them the greater light and the lesser light. This is in, I think this is intentional. He wanted them to know that the sun and the moon and the stars, that God who, the God who created them is much greater than those. People worshipped the sun and the moon, right? They, they worshipped those things. And so the God, who's, the God who created them is much greater than them. He's far greater than those things. He doesn't even, Moses doesn't even take the, the liberty to name them. We can't even look at the sun without damaging our eyes, yet God created it. We can't number the stars, yet the text simply says, this is my favorite. We can't number the stars, yet the text simply says, oh yeah, God made the stars also. Look at verse 20. You let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Tells them in verse 22-23 says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Notice that God fills the waters with swarms of living creatures. He fills the sky with birds. This corresponds to day two of creation when He formed the heavens and the sea. Now I want you to look at verses 24 and 25 where we see the beginning of day six. And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, and cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beast of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. In this day, in the beginning of day six, God brought forth the land animals and the insects. This corresponds with day three, where he formed the dry land and what? The vegetation. But this begs the question, where is, his, where is man? And what will be his role in creation? Let's quickly look at God created by founding the delegation of his power. Keith covered this 
these verses in his sermons, so I only briefly will bring this up. But in Genesis one twenty six, we see that God made man in his image and likeness. But we also see that God made man to rule over this creation that he has, he has brought forth. God created man then to be his vice regent over his creation. Let's look at Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see that, that God has, in fact, created man in his image. We also see that God created them, man, male, and female. Look at verse 28. Notice that God blesses them. This blessing shows that, that God wants his people to experience the, the immense abundance of this perfect world that he's created. God made man in His image in order that man would rule over God's creation that is absolutely perfect and amazing. It's important for us to understand. God's creation is God's kingdom. He is the ultimate king. Man is made in God's image and rules as God's vice regent, if you will. God established His creation to point to His glory. Man who was created in God's image points to God as the rightful ruler of His creation. That's how God created this and what man is designed to do. You see, God designed man to point all of creation back to Him and His glory. In Genesis 1, 29 and 30, God promises to care for mankind and for all His creation. Now quickly look at Genesis 1, 31. God saw all that He made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So God's creation, according to verse 31, was very good. In other words, there was, His creation was complete. It was perfect. He had created everything. There was no corruption in it, according to verse 31. The text doesn't allow for evolution or millions of years. God created His world to be perfect. He created it by the word of His power. That's what the biblical authors understood. That's what we need to understand. How could, let me ask you this question, how could His creation be very good if death and corruption were already present? Couldn't. This brings us to Genesis 1-3 through where we find God created by framing the pattern of His power. Genesis 2.1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. He finished every location. He filled every location. As we, have, as we have said, He created everything in His creation to reflect His glory. Now let's take a look at day 7. In verse 2, By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Now, the idea here of rest is that God ceased from work to enjoy His work. Creation had been finalized and now God is enjoying all that He's made. Now look at Genesis 2.3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it He rested from all His work which God created and made. The, the word translated sanctified is made, made it holy. In other words, He, he set it apart and and he designated the seventh day for a purpose. He wanted his world to experience his blessing fully. Now I want you to notice something here. In his first six days, Moses uses a formula. 
There was evening and there was morning. In other words, each day had a distinct beginning and ending. Each day stood on its own. But notice the seventh day. God doesn't, or Moses doesn't use that familiar formula. I would argue that God designed the seventh day to be perpetual. And that's important to understand. God designed the world to be at rest. God designed the world to be complete and at rest, enjoying His blessing forever. He designed the seventh day to last forever, in other words. and He designed every day to be a Sabbath day, a day to rest and enjoy His blessings. In other words, I'll say it a different way, the purpose of creation was to be set apart to enjoy God forever. Now, we know that that's not what happened. God has an agenda to return His world back to rest. That is the point. That is where this is all pointing to is that he's going to point he's pointing his world his redeeming this world in order that it might enjoy his blessing in order that it might be at rest Abner Chow says that rest is the fullest enjoyment of God's creation Now next week we'll pick up on this idea of rest as we look at Genesis chapter 2 but in the meantime I want to direct your attention to Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Just listen to them. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As you know, if you've been here very long, you know that I often use these verses as the gospel invitation. But they take on a new meaning when, they, when you look at them considering Genesis 2, 1-3. You see, in them, in those words, Jesus is inviting us to enter His rest. To enter His rest. In, in other words, He's inviting us to return to a place of full blessing. Rest is not like going to bed at night or resting from a long day at work. No, this is eternal rest. Eternal rest for our souls. Yes, there is an aspect of trusting in Jesus and finding rest in this day. But as you trust the Lord Jesus, as you trust what He has done on the cross, uh, we must never forget that God will give us eternal rest. And that we will dwell with Him forever. Dwell with Him forever. That is if you know Him. That is if you've trusted in His work of salvation. If you've trusted in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, and you believe with all your heart that He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for us question this morning as we finish up the question is are you in Christ do you know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior
Let me say it another way. Have you entered into his rest? Have you entered into his rest? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I pray that you would use my flawed words, my weakness to for your glory. Father, we pray this morning that I pray Lord, that you would be glorified. When I believe with all my heart, with everything that I am, that you created the heavens and the earth, that you spoke them into existence, and that you created them for your glory, and that you created us in your image to bring you glory. Are there any other understanding lessons that truth? Father, may we as Christians trust in your word. Father, may we trust. We have faith. That as we look at this world that, that has been created, that you created it. More than that, I pray, Lord, that we would find rest for our souls. That we would find rest in the Lord Jesus. Father, that we would, that we would trust in His work of salvation. Father, I pray even now, if there are those here that don't know You, Father, that they would call out to You. That they would Trust in the work of Christ. That they would look to the cross. Lord, we're so thankful. So thankful for the truths of your word. We pray these things in the name of, in the matchless name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.